Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. No fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So, we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. Succession Resource Group knows about planning for your firm's future. Whether your focus is on growth, building a scalable enterprise, or planning for your exit. SRG also knows top people in the field who help advisors leverage resources, plan for their own future, and plan for the future of their team and clients. In this episode, David Grau of SRG talks with Matt Cooper, the president of Beacon Point Advisors, about RIAs, the state of the M&A market and where Beacon is still finding opportunities to create a win-win with advisors, and how founders can maximize their firm's potential when they plan to sell. So, David, kick us off with a little background on why you wanted Matt to join you on this episode. Well, we, Matt and I, have never actually had the pleasure of doing deals together, but I think he knows SRG is out here and doing lots of deal making, and we see Beacon, Matt's name, in the paper press all the time and always for good reasons. And frankly, uh, we've talked to enough folks who have had conversations with, I say Matt, but you know, Matt's team there at Beacon now is a little bigger than just Matt. Um, but frankly, they've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people at Beacon. I've only ever heard good things. I know Matt and hold him in the highest regard. And frankly, there's so much, I say there's so much noise around the topic of mergers and acquisitions and succession planning. But at the same time, the number of conversations I have where I feel like I'm still trying to convince the advisor I'm talking to that there is something to plan for, that they should be thinking about succession planning. So it's kind of mind-boggling. On one side, I can say there's a lot of noise and a lot of maybe not bad information, but information that isn't positioned in such a way that the audience can interpret it in a way that applies to them. And, and that to me can be a real challenge. We have to start overcoming barriers before you can make any progress. And then you got the other side where despite all the noise that's out there and efforts that you know Matt and Beacon have made to try to be a solution for folks and that we've done through our marketing, there's still a lot of folks who I think are not planning for succession. And at this point, I don't think it's sort of the ostrich head in the sand. Like they're not ignorant of it or avoiding it. I think it's the fact that they have good, consistent, recurring income. They like what they do. They're not steel workers. And for lack of a plan B, they're going to go with plan A, which is kind of die at my desk, retire in place. And for a firm called Succession Resource Group, and for all the time and effort that Matt's firm puts into helping these people create sustainable enterprises, it pains me to know that that client service model that they spent 20 or 30 years building trusted relationships to see them retire through attrition is just a knife through my heart and it kills me and i'm pretty sure the compliance folks out there it kills them if you were a client it would kill you listening so anyway i 
think, if nothing else, getting Matt on and talking about the subject and unpacking it is just about helping raise awareness and make the collective pie bigger. But Matt, from your position, you know what we do. You certainly knew probably the genre of questions that I was going to be asking you. Your thoughts? Why the hell did you sign up to come do this with me? Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I think it's a conversation that uh, the more we have it, you know, maybe the more it kind of gets people thinking that something needs to happen. You know, there's a decision tree that that every advisor goes through as they evolve in the industry. You know, it begins with, am I going to be a, an advisor working for somebody else or am I going to start my own my own business? Uh, yeah. And then, and then it's, you know, am I going to be a lifestyle business or am I going to try to create enterprise, real enterprise value? And if I decide to be, you know, a lifestyle business, um, am I going to be especially niche business that really drives, you know, value to clients? Or am I going to be a coupon clipper that ultimately, you know, stalls in terms of organic growth and ultimately dies over time? I exit with my boots on kind of thing. Uh, if I become an enterprise business, uh, what does that mean? Am I going to really steal it up, try to become a multi-office national right. firm and, and create tremendous value? Am I going to take outside capital? So there's a lot of decisions. I can say that, you know, every standalone wealth management business, every single one is going to have to make a decision, uh, especially when it comes to uh, succession planning. And is it going to be internal? Is it going to happen? Am I going to create a succession plan? Right. Which I would suggest we all have that obligation. And number two, is it going to be internal or external? And the, the two things that we need to solve for are first, our fiduciary responsibility, obligation, legal responsibility to yeah. our clients. And then secondly, our moral obligation to our team. Well, it's funny you mentioned it because we talked about actually on the last podcast that uh, you weren't on, probably haven't listened to yet. I don't know if it's released, but the focus was exactly what you just articulated, Matt, about not getting caught in the middle, is being intentional about either A, building the enterprise, and if you're the empire builder, more power to you, but make that your goal and have that as part of the business plan, or build that lean, mean lifestyle practice that is just uber efficient. No, it's not going to take over the world, but when you look at its numbers, it's tough to compete with because it's so darn nimble. It's the folks who get stuck in the middle that those are the ones that become a real challenge. Yeah, and it's alluring to get caught in the middle, right? Because these businesses do throw out great cash flow. They provide a great right. income in your Frankly, you can take six months of the year and go sit on the beach, go surfing, go fishing, play golf, whatever whatever you like to do that's not client-based. You can go do other stuff. And that, that uh, if not done correctly, can can lead to uh, some issues. Right? Yeah, especially from the work that we do on valuation and succession planning. It leads to a lot of, I don't want to say shattered hopes, but folks who get the valuation back as they're building and the numbers don't come back where they want. And a lot of times it's because they're somewhere in between that lifestyle practice and that enterprise. They, they just can't get that scale, which to me is a perfect segue into a good jumping off point for the two of us, which is maybe you sharing a little bit of background on Beacon. And I suspect for most of those listening, they'll at least recognize the name if not have a pretty good idea of what they think Beacon Point is about, but I imagine you could probably unpack that a little more for us in the audience. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, it's a good segue. I mean, we we started the business, uh, myself, Shannon, yeah. Dad, or um, a couple other people in 2002, and deliberately, uh, we set it up as a business, not a practice. In other words, we had dedicated management 
running the business. Shannon ran the business. And we had others, myself included, that were bringing in clients, serving clients, et cetera. And we operated as a single location RIA for the first nine years of our existence. And, and through that focus and through that framework, we grew fast, uh, relative to speaking. And we got to about four and a half million dollars uh, in 2010. And at that point, um, I was on the TD Veritrade Institutional Advisor panel, which no longer exists, it's Nash Schwab. But uh, uh, they were talking about it was a little panel, it was uh, Rudy Edoff from Focus Financial and Mark Curley. And they were talking about the future of the industry and pressures on smaller firms and so on and so forth. And just hearing that story, I thought with our excess capacity, we could present or provide some form of solution to the industry. And so really in earnest, not knowing what we were doing, said, hey, you know, we're here to do M&A. And we're successful almost right out of the gate. I mean, within three or four months, we had done our first deal with a small firm in Arizona. But back then, it was just United Capital focused, high tower and us, really. All right. In terms of planning the game. Wealth Trust was already gone. Mesa was already gone. Um, and so it, it was kind of a, an easier, uh, well, it was never easy, but it, there was less competition out there. Yeah. Over 90 years, we did uh, nine deals and uh, about six and a half million dollars when you count the growth that we acquired. Um, and the business got to a point where um, we knew in order to compete, there were more players. We knew we were going to have to take outside capital. And so we brought in a minority private equity partner in March of 2020, every partner at Boston. We grew it over seven quarters, uh, both organically and organically. So our organic growth rates were thir- low 13% net of market across all GR. So very strong organic growth. And then we did 19 M&A transactions in that seven quarter period, which led to a near tripling of the business. And uh, we went through another process took Avery out and brought in KKR as our private equity partner. So for the last year and a half, KKR is our private equity partner. We've got a number of other transactions. And the whole the whole idea would be the point is, uh, can we build a great long-term operating company focused on the quality, what we're doing, the quality of the people? Uh, and the first three streams are no jerks allowed, no jerks allowed, no jerks allowed. So it's we won't have a great time doing what we're doing. We'd love to be in every primary and secondary market. We're not going to do that at the expense of the culture of people and and uh, we're clicking along. So it's been fun. If you want to know a little something, you know, we're pushing close to $30 billion, 500 people in the company. There's 48 offices, soon to be 51. Uh, and uh, no less. Yes, I mean, you guys have been obviously active on the M&A activity and, to your point, both the owner and our growth at the same time. So I think you saw my second question here that I got teed up, and there's been a fair amount of activity on, I don't know, the various trade publications at this point around like the REA deal volume, deal activity. DeVoe's good about publishing what he's seen. Sievert at Echelon does it. You know, we post our deal volume and deal metrics. Seems like so much of this is driven, I think, maybe by the interest rate environment, the aging advisor force certainly isn't helping matters. You know, kind of that silver tsunami I've heard folks talk about. What are your thoughts? I mean, you're, you're on the front lines, you're working on deal making, you're talking to sellers, and even per your previous comment, you've got the private equity backing. 
What are your thoughts on the M&A deal volume? And does the PE stuff make it any easier or harder for you guys when rates are the way they are? Uh, depends on the firm. So <laughs> you see some PE back platforms be a little too far out over their skis and over lever and just last couple of years. Or at least take a pause. Um, but the the answer, the whole thing's being driven by demographics. Uh, it's the aging founders, of course, the value of those businesses and the inability of uh, them to really affect an internal transition succession plan. And then also focusing on, you know, making sure that the next generation is taken care of Right. Plan, but also you know it's not just older advisors worried about retirement. It's also younger advisors worried about being competitive, looking forward, and being able to grow at a speed that uh, you know allows them to compete in local markets. And you know the value of the underlying businesses becomes such that if they can merge into a larger partner, like be point. And there's cash and equity consideration deal. Now they've diversified, right? Because they've taken some cash off the table and the equity that they own is now being supported by 50 offices across the country as opposed to their efforts locally with the risk of something happening at the local level, whether it's an illness or whatever, and may uh, derail the process. So I think younger um, advisors are becoming more uh, informed and sophisticated about what it what the possibilities are for partnering with a larger partner. And then the older advisors are understanding that, hey, you know, in order for me to realize the value of my life's work, I probably won't be able to pull out a general deal. I just need to make sure that whatever I do um, works for the next generation. And a sophisticated buyer will understand the motivations of the first generation, but also, most importantly, understand that next generation. So yeah, good segue. What is there an ideal situation for somebody coming in and looking at affiliating with you all at Beacon Point or vice versa that you'd be pursuing? And is it the older advisor with the billion dollar book who's about to retire? Is it the advisor who's at, you know, million, two million in revenue and just sort of stuck, kind of plateaued? Who's the ideal target at this point? Or is there even an ideal target? Uh, it would be 300 million or more, a million of EBITDA. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say in the two examples you gave, we would prefer a billion dollar firm where it's you know, grown. They've at least proven that they can get to that point. The question is, do they have a, a great next generation behind that? Yeah. So you saw a billion dollar firm, founder driven, a lot of uh, admin support, but no next generation leadership advisors. That wouldn't expect. But if we saw a you know four hundred million dollar firm, two forty year old principals that were really focused on the next seven to ten years, had a track record of organic growth that was greater than ten percent, that would excite us. And then, are they planning oriented? You know, are they allocators? Uh, we're trying to avoid the the asset manager that's dressed up like a wealth manager. Um, yeah. So, you know, we advice. Human advice and wisdom is something that to date was yet to be monetized. Uh, the invested story, you know, it's easily monetized, at least uh, duplicated by technology, if you will. Right. Got it. And it does sound like, I mean, 
the next generation behind them, the Gen 2, Gen 3 folks, I mean, billion dollar, $5 billion, $20 billion firm, that next gen talent sounds like it's a big component of what you guys are looking for, or at least that some of that talent is there on the team already. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's critical. I mean, we're doing m and as much to acquire talent as we are the economic reasons for doing it, right? Okay. And it's so hard to hire great folks. When you find a firm that has three, four, five great young, you know, professionals in the firm, I mean, that's exciting. That's really exciting. We, we would lean into something like that pretty hard, assuming they're growth-oriented, that, you know, wherever they are in their career, they want to be something much greater than that, not too far down. And that's something we want to help with. Is there anything that Beacon Point does or has done with folks? I mean, I just, I know so many advisors who, I think they would hear that message and think, well, yeah, I mean, obviously keeping talent, attracting talent is important, having a career path, but so many firms, I mean, industry agnostic, frankly, but just focusing on the advisory space, so many firms really struggle with building that sort of career path job descriptions, pay bans, and trying to bring that next-gen talent up, but let alone attract it and retain it. I mean, how have you all done it internally? Because you've had a ton of growth in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, and so it's part of being a steel platform and attracting people at platform level that can put those pieces together. So whether it's in the HR realm or the uh, advisor education realm, Chris Clark, Kevin Ciano, uh is kind of our player coach, chief growth officer across the firm, communicating best practices. We tie it all together through technology, through our intranet uh, called Compass. And and so, and there are regular, you know, training uh, situations going on, whether it's planning related, investments related. We have committee systems where people are, you know, around the country are involved in different committees. So there's a lot of interaction amongst the professionals that allows them to learn and grow from each other and grow in their respective roles. You know, look, we look at M&A. When we get into an M&A thing, we'll, we'll bring in, um, you know, we have a partner in uh, a certain metro market. We're looking at another firm in that market or another advisor in that market. We want our local partner to all, because he's going to be partners with this person. They're going to be, help, they're going to be, you know, the brand in that, in that market. And we want them to be able to uh, synergize with each other and, make things happen. So yeah, it's really, it's, it's about human contacts and communication, education and spending time with people. We tie it all together with technology. And technology brings it all back together. Got it. Well, and, and given how many office locations you all now have, would it be fair to say that the firms you'd be looking to potentially, I'll just say do business with. I don't even want to say acquire or merge necessarily, because I think you got a pretty diverse platform, which we can unpack here in a minute. But for firms you'd be doing business with or choosing to do business with, does it change at all based on their proximity, let's say, to an existing Beacon Point hub, as opposed to maybe a totally new location you're not present in? That the only uh, determining factor, well, the primary determining factor is just that. Do the economics make sense for it to be a standalone office in a market where not yet exposed? We don't have a have a plenty flag in that market yet. Otherwise, uh, you know, no. I mean, if they're if they have a million or more in um, run rate EBITDA, consider, and if it's if it's a situation where we've got 
an exiting advisor in the next generation that's not quite ready to run that office, then we would hope that there's somebody nearby to affiliate with or perhaps move in. I'm not sure. But we're doing a we're doing we're doing a few of those right now in different local markets where we already exist. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was going with is I know you have enough locations now, sort of like, you know, satellite locations that could be magnets. Just knowing how many advisors are out there at conferences that I have a chance to talk to that they'll probably never get to a billion. I don't even know that they have aspirations to get to a billion, but they do have, you know, nice, clean, simple, well-run shops. And I know they would have an interest you know, in partnering, I say partnering, selling to a firm like Beacon Point. Because you guys have a well-established brand, I think they know, they think they know what you all do, what you're about. And they're probably not far off in all cases. And they're right down the street from one of your like major locations. Would that be somebody you all would have a conversation with or is it, is it still too small? No, those people are tremendously valuable. Um, okay. And not everybody who joins, affiliates, merges, sells to, to have even point has to be a you know, double digit grower. Uh, if they're good, solid people, they they you know free free value for clients. Clients don't yeah. leave, and they add a client here or there along the way. We love those people. Um, and in any yeah. reality, it's the what is Pareto principle, the eighty twenty rule. Yep. So twenty percent of the people around the country are going to drive those out outsized you know, organic growth rates. It's just the way that the world works, and we get that. But we we need great people to you know, create great relationships with our clients. And so we, yeah, now we're, we're big fans. Okay. So million dollar question and an impossibly difficult one to answer succinctly, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I gave you the heads up on it. How is Beacon Point structuring their deals, generally speaking now? So I'm a billion dollar, $2 billion shop. I'm a 55 year old advisor. I really don't want to keep doing this on my own. I've frankly gotten a little too big, I think, for my Gen 2, Gen 3 folks out there to feel comfortable taking over. I mean, it's a story I've heard a million times. How are you guys structuring deals? Is it a duffel bag full of cash? You can tell me to you know beat feet. Am I getting all equity and beacon point and being you know sort of handcuffed to the chair? How are you guys getting your yeah. wins with the advisors? Uh, it's a combination of both. So we, okay. it's typically cash and equity, no less than 20% equity, no more than 60%. Okay. Um, a balance is cash. We deliver 80% of the consideration. It's a typical deal. 80% of, and we have flexibility. I don't know. This is typically sure. 80% of the consideration at close. And then we hold back 20% in a retention based earnout for the next 12 months. Okay. And that takes, that eliminates market. And so all we're measuring is, you know, the business that we bought is still there 12 months based on the list of clients, the eight clubs, no market. And then on top of that, typically add uh, growth incentives. And so if people grow at 10 and then 15%, you know, uh, issue another check or more equity depending on the structural deal is, but it's typically 80% at close, 20% at a retention earnout, and one or two more turns, a uh, piece of the growth incentive. And we, the reason why we want equity is, remember, I said we're looking at, we want people who are really excited about that the next, you know, five, seven, ten years. And we want them all up. So we want, you know, we want to make sure that we have perfect alignment between all the constituents. And, you know, I think you know that our, our private equity partners 
KKR, they own about half of the business. Yep. They're in the same economics. One of the reasons why we chose KKR is they were willing to be a common shareholder, get the deal. And so they're in the same economics that we're all. And that's that's important for us. We want to make sure we have perfect alignment anyone responsible. Well, and you mentioned, you know, that there's some flexibility in putting the deals together. It seems like one of those things that we run into more than I had ever expected, given that, you know, the folks who have private equity investors to go do more deals, presumably in the past have done enough deals that now somebody else trusts them with their money to go out there and gamble with it effectively. I mean, inform gambling, but it's still risky doing these deals. And, And they go out there and... There are firms that I, I know we've done deals with in the past, but when they get to the point where they're taking private equity and they're starting to make these offers more regularly, they end up with these pitch decks. And it just seems like it's kind of like a model portfolio. You know, Matt, you approach me. Here is scenario A, B, or C, and you're fitting into one of those three blocks, or we have enough volume, we're just going to move on. How do you guys put these deals together scalably, but still stay flexible? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, um, one of our competitors, I heard, 31 LOIs floating around out there. If we have more than two out at any given point in time, it's a shocker. So it's it's the team. So there's eight people on the M&A team. Got it. So we're constantly talking to potential uh, partners and people want to be join, acquire, whatever. Um, and it's just putting in the putting in the reps and making sure that we get it right. And then we you know we're very selective about what we decided make an offer as opposed to I'm not a big fan of uh, investment maker driven broad processes where there's you know, 10, 15, 20 buyers in the process right? and they filter everything. You don't really get to know the other side. Everything has to go through that self side investment. Maker. I think that's cheating both the buyer and the seller of the opportunity to really get to know each other. I don't know what the ramifications for that are down the road. I would suggest probably a, a few bad bits. And for that extra, you know, whatever, 500,000. Right. Um, now you're missing. So um, we're, we're really, really, we've got 40 something transactions. I mean, I, 95% of them are self-sourced. So we're we're not responding to every one of these third party in processing decks that are coming across. We don't, and we don't behave that way ourselves. We're not just putting out decks, hoping for the best. Yeah, I'm sure the pipeline's big enough, you know, going out there with two or three standardized offers might work for some, but having worked on these deals, I suspect you guys are probably having a lot higher batting average, spending the time to be a little bit more refined on each individual target. Yeah, because, you know, if you can come out with like model ABT, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, I mean, that's simple. It only addresses one of the keys, which is the economics. The other big E as we go through this stuff is emotional and that's yeah. relationship. That's, you know, really understanding what the seller is trying to accomplish. And, you know, basically that's where the art is making sure that you shape the deal so that everybody's happy enough. Right. So everybody should be really happy, but a little bit disappointed about something. And then you, us included, and then you end up with a great, a great outcome. Yeah. Right. But well said, a good way to sort of bring it home. So I'll ask you one last one, and that is having done, 
I mean, dozens of deals at this point. Any lessons you've learned from the deals you've been involved with that you'd be able to share with, I'll say buyers or sellers, just your fellow advisors listening? Yeah, if you're a buyer, um, it's not a hobby. I mean, you you need to be very deliberate, focused on this, and understand the opportunity yeah. cost of not being successful. Because of the terminal value, if you can go out and get a new client or bring in assets from an existing client, the terminal value of that is so great that if you spend two or three years trying to be a buyer and you're not successful, you, you squandered millions of dollars of potential value in your business. Uh, from a selling standpoint, I would say, you know, one of the big mistakes sellers make is they try to get too lean out of the sale or they've always run and it's not a fully developed business and, and the buyers now are becoming more sophisticated. And so they see, you know, I had somebody say to me, look, I'm running 71% margins. It's not impressive. And I said, well, not really because it's not a, it's not a business. It's a, it's a, I don't know what it is. It's a practice that throws off a lot of cash for you, but you couldn't see into the live on its own if something were to happen to you. And that's, you know, that's effectively what you should be building a business that is a self-managing company that you can walk away from and to something else and keep going. Uh, so I would say don't get too lean as a seller and don't make this a hobby as a buyer. Uh, be deliberate on both sides. Yeah, and, and well stated, especially on the seller side, we do, I'm surprised how often we see it where folks the last two to three years, they finally get this laser beam focus on getting the business prepared for sale. And you can see their financials the last like five years, it looks like a totally different business. And you go back five years ago and it was a well-run business, but now they've cut costs and all of a sudden they're leaning into the fact that, well, Matt, we've been growing by, you know, 20% over the last five years. Well, yeah, but the last year your marketing budget went down to effectively zero. So all of a sudden that growth is not worth nearly as much to me because you're trying to take it out the other end now. So we do see that a lot. And that's why, frankly, we encourage folks, whether they work with us or somebody else, start to get the business valued periodically. Just keep your finger on the pulse of things, what's driving value, what, you know, large enterprise level buyers like you all are looking for. So I appreciate you carving out time to share some of those insights if folks wanted to get in contact with either you or somebody on your team after listening to this, where would they start? Uh, they, two ways. I mean, they get in contact with me direct uh, in paperfeature.com. Um, but you can also go straight through our website. There's a landing uh, page, there's a partnership opportunity style. Just click on that. Say, so you do it where you can inquire and then uh, somebody will get right back. And I also know you're not one of those folks who gets the LinkedIn message and then 18 months later responds. <laughs> you're pretty Johnny on the spot, whether it's you or somebody on your team on LinkedIn as well. So I imagine that's another resource they could leverage. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know what? It's a people business. It's just bound to respect people. So yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to take LinkedIn messages and respond, interact. It's great. Cool. Well, you make it sound so easy, Matt, but it's uh, it's a testament to, I think, the success you all have had and the wins I suspect you guys are going to keep having. So appreciate you carving out a few minutes for all of us. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Patrice, I'm going to hand it back to you. And I'm going to ask you one more question. How can people reach you? Uh, yeah, good question. So same as Matt, always on LinkedIn. We are you know, good about posting our content there, but also just another forum to interact with you all. 
Uh, the website, successionresource.com, is always a good place to start. All our contact information is there. I think you can even schedule a meeting with our team uh, from that spot. And then you can always email us, info at successionresourcegroup.com. That will go to like 12 people in the firm. I guarantee you'll have a response within minutes. All right. And listeners, follow the podcast. Share the podcast. Let David know what topics you would like him to talk about. Thanks for being with us. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.